you would pray with me, uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for this time. We thank you for this opportunity uh, to gather together. We thank you for your word and that you've inspired it, that you've kept it, that you've given it to us. Uh, we confess each week as we open your word that we cannot do this without you. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, our guide, that you would take the eternal truths of your word and apply them to our hearts and our minds. We pray this morning that as we seek you in this, that we would see you more fully, that you would show us, uh, uh, multiply your great love in our hearts, that you would show us how much you love us and care for us, and that we would see that more clearly this morning than we ever have before. Uh, We pray that you'd be glorified. Uh, We pray that your name would be lifted up in all that is done and said here this morning. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. you may not be aware of this. Actually, I kind of hope that you're not aware of this. But um, I read this week that there are over 20 reality TV shows on marriage and weddings on TV right now. I don't know if you knew that. Over over 20, right? And uh, I, I was looking at different things and kind of uh, looking at different things our culture says about weddings and marriage and the like and all that goes with it. And I was kind of surprised to see that there's over 20 reality TV shows. And as I started to look at them, uh, it started to become fairly clear that I don't think any of those shows really are giving us a pretty biblical picture of what marriage is, uh, like 90 day bride, right? People come over from other countries and they have 90 days to figure out if they're going to marry this person so they can stay in the country. That's a real show that's really on TV. Uh, one of the other couple of the others that I saw, one was called um, Big Redneck Wedding. And the little tagline was like, you get to people, see people married on horseback and have mud wrestling competitions at their reception while they eat roasted squirrel. That's really what it says. Like, that was the thing. And I was like, whoa, really? Uh, probably the best, or I guess worst, saddest, I don't know how you say it, but uh, bridal plasty. Twelve brides uh, compete to see who gets the wedding of their dreams and plastic surgery to go with it. And I was like, whoa, yeah, exactly. That's kind of the way I felt. I was like, oh, that's awful. Like, really sad. But that's kind of what it is. And, and so you may go, well, what in the world does that have to do with anything? And so we're in Ephesians. We've been going through this book of Ephesians. And we're to this section. It's one of the longest sections in the Bible on marriage. And Paul's going to flesh out a lot of what God's design and what it means and all those things. And so that's kind of jokingly what is out there. But there are so many things competing to inform us about what marriage is and what it looks like and the way we should see it. And TV is just a reflection of our culture and the way we see those things. And so you see all those shows and you go, whoa, it's pretty bad when you start to hear those descriptions and the things that are there. And so what we're going to look at this morning really stands in a stark contrast to what our world says and what our culture says about this. And so we've been going through Ephesians. One of the themes that we keep seeing over and over is Paul's calling us to walk in light of who we now are in Christ. Uh, you, were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you're alive in Christ. He says, so walk in the light, uh, put to death your flesh, walk in the spirit, not in your flesh, walk in the light, not in the dark, put off your old self, put on your new self been saying those things over and over as we've been in Ephesians for several months now. And so one of the things we keep coming back to is that we see that in discipleship, in growing in obedience and all these things that Paul's calling us to, there's really no neutral because our culture is continually telling us some things about the way we're to live and what it looks like. And marriage is no different. 
We're getting hit with that from all sides in a lot of different ways. And so what we're going to look at in this passage, really the next three weeks, is we're going to talk about this idea of marriage and the way the Bible presents it, a biblical view of what marriage is. And so for three weeks, we're really going to look at that. Really the next five weeks is really marriage, uh, family, kind of parenting, and then work, because that's what Paul's going to take on in all these things. And so let me just remind you what we've been doing leading up to this. We've been talking about being filled with the Spirit and what that looks like and the marks of that, uh, of following the Holy Spirit in all things. And it's no uh, accident that Paul says that, fleshes that out, goes through that right before he tells us all these things on marriage and work and parenting and all that goes with it. Because we can't do any of the things that he's pointing us to in our own power. It has to be the power of the Spirit at work within us that any of this would work. And so with that said, what we're going to do is... But the marriage idea this week, we're going to talk about this big idea. Um, we're going to hit on a couple of verses. We're really going to look at two verses towards the end of the passage in verse 31 and 32. Big idea of marriage, what the Bible says. Next week, we'll talk about the purpose of marriage. And then in two weeks, we'll talk about the structure of marriage, the way God has set that up. So that's my big picture here. But also to let you know, I'm not skipping this whole thing about wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. I'm not going to get to that today, but that's not because we're shying away from it or we're not going to talk about it. We'll actually get to that in two weeks. But it's very important to see all of this. And we kind of need to lay the foundation to get to everything that Paul's saying on marriage and what that looks like. And so today, big idea of marriage and the way we're going to look at this this morning as we look mostly at those two verses in verse 31 and 32 is first that marriage is God's idea. Uh, it didn't something not that we made up, but that God's idea and he came up with it. Secondly, we're going to talk about uh, the idea of covenant, what that means, the covenant of marriage, because that's actually in this text. It may be a little obscure, but we'll talk about where it, why uh, I would say that. So it's God's idea, the covenant of marriage. And then lastly, we're just going to talk about when we set these things in the biblical light, the expectations, the way it changes our expectations for marriage. Um, part of the problem we see with marriage in our culture is we have some expectations that we put on it that were never part of God's design and it causes all sorts of issues and struggles. And so let's just start with the big idea of marriage. And so if you'd look with me there in Ephesians Chapter five, let's start with what Paul says in verse 31. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so I want that to be kind of our foundational statement that Paul's talking about right off the bat at the beginning. If you look closely in the Pew Bible, if you're following along, or I know it's in the ESV, it may not be in uh, the version that you have or, or your own personal Bible. But what the ESV does is it'll put a footnote when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament. And so verse 31 there, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter two. And so the first thing I want us to consider and start with is I want us to actually go back to Genesis 2 and the way Paul lays this out from the beginning. And so if you want to turn there with me, if you want to follow along, Genesis 2, probably the easiest book of the Bible to find because it's first, uh, second chapter, you're right at the beginning. So Genesis 2, we're going to pick up in verse 18 because I want us to get this kind of foundational what the Bible says about marriage. And so we go right back to the very beginning, Genesis 1, creation of the world. 
culminating with God making man and woman in Genesis 1, saying they're both made in God's image. Genesis 2 kind of retells that story with some more detail. It gets into some detail on how God creates man and woman and how they relate together. And so let's look there at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so you see there in verse 24, the exact same thing that Paul quotes in Ephesians chapter five. And so you have this this uh, him going back to the very beginning. And I want us to think about creation and what God was doing there. When you read that creation account in Genesis two, there's one thing and it's the only thing that we see in the Bible that God says is not good in his creation before sin enters the world. And it's in Genesis two there in verse 18, when he says it is not good that man should be alone. And so he makes a helper fit for him. If that bothers you that it says helper, it doesn't mean helper like come alongside and, you know, like daddy's little helper and whole things. It's, it's completing him in a way, helping him to see and do some things that he doesn't see fully in and of himself. And so what we see in this picture that God gives us is we have an innate longing for companionship and it's built into who we are. It's not good that the man should be alone. Part of that we get from chapter one is it says that God created male and female. He created them and he created both of them in God's image. We are made after God's image and his likeness. And so what that means is that God in and of himself, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, perfect three in one, that God in and of himself is perfect community and love already before he creates anything. We are made in his image after his likeness. So we are created to be relational beings. And so when God creates Adam and he puts them on the face of the earth and there's animals and trees and plants and it's good creation and it's wonderful in all these ways, there's one thing that is not good, that he doesn't have uh, this other person, this relationship, because we are created in God's image to be relational in this way. And so you see that in Genesis 1:27. So he creates male and female. He creates them both in his image after his likeness. And so there's a whole lot in that Genesis passage, but I'm just going to touch on a couple things this morning. Uh, the first, just that God creates man and woman both in his image and after his likeness. And so in the creation, even though he creates Adam and then creates Eve, we would say that men and women are both equal in worth and value. There's no hierarchy and our worth, our value. This is where um, I've heard probably the worst teachings 
from the Bible on this subject. A lot of times we get into all kinds of things that the Bible never says. There's not a hierarchy of intelligence. Men are not smarter than women. Um, if you know men and women, you probably know that. <laughs> but it's not a smarter than. It's not men are more spiritual than women. It's not any of those things. He creates us differently. We have different attributes and there are some distinctions there, but it's not equal, but it completely equal in worth and value, both made in God's image. And so God creates this woman. He brings her before Adam. In verse 23, he exclaims, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Right? He goes, yes, finally, there's one that's like me in this, that's compatible for me. And you see Adam kind of explain, exclaim and get excited over this, that here God has brought him and presented this woman. And then in verse 24, we have the first marriage in all the Bible. Now, you may say, well, where is that? Because all it says in verse 24 is, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. But it's actually there. There's a marriage ceremony right there. That word hold fast literally means to be glued together in a binding covenant, a promise for life. To be glued together, to be brought to be one. And he says that the two flesh shall become one. And so that's in a spiritual sense, in a greater sense, but it's also in a very literal, physical sense. A man and woman come together, they consummate the relationship, they become one. And so you have the very first wedding ceremony right there as God presents Eve to Adam. This is God's idea. He's the one that ordained this and brings them together. And this is what Paul is quoting in Ephesians 5. And so it's important for us to start there. But then as we go through the Bible, we see a lot about marriage and the way God has designed it. We get to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and they ask him specifically about marriage. And so it says this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he created that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, whatever, therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. And so Jesus points back to Genesis 2 and he talks about God's creation and his design. And he says, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And so he puts his kind of uh, uh, stamp of approval on everything that Scripture says, which is what Jesus always does with the Old Testament. He upholds all of it and he explains it and he points it to us to give us a more full understanding of what it looks like. And so you see God's design in this. It is one man and one woman in a monogamous, committed relationship for life. That's what you see in Genesis 2. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. It's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, when they come to Jesus and ask him about divorce, this is a, another sermon for another day, but I want to give you the full picture of what he says there. He does say that in the case of sexual immorality, divorce is then permitted. And that's the direction he gives. But he says and he presents to us that God's plan and his will in this and the way he designed it is one man and one woman for life in a committed monogamous relationship. 
Right? And so that's what the Bible says. Big, big picture. I know that's pretty simple and straightforward. But I'd say it's a stark contrast to a lot of the things that get put forward in our culture today. So we kind of need to start even at that simple and that straightforward big idea. And so the second thing I want us to consider, though, is when he says, let what God has brought together, let no man separate this idea of a uh, a binding covenant, this covenant relationship. What it says in Ephesians that Paul's quoting in Genesis two about holding fast, being glued together, bound together. For life in that. And so this idea of covenant in the Bible is a binding promise. And it's very different than the way our culture would look at marriage and relationships and the way we see things. Very different in a whole lot of ways. And I think the way I I usually think about it when I think of covenant in the Bible and then the way our world looks at it, I look at it as kind of a covenant relationship versus today we'd say more of a consumer relationship. We live in a consumeristic society and so we see everything in those terms. You probably, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say that even about the church and the way we operate and the way we think. People say, what time is your service? Right? It's like a, a, a business exchange. What time are you providing a service? And I will come and if I like it enough, I will stay or maybe I won't, depending on how well you serve me in that. Right? And we use consumer language in everything. We think about it in our relationships Right? You get along with someone, if I like them enough and they like me enough and I enjoy it, then I might continue to be your friend. Right? It's like this exchange. It's like a commodities kind of thing. You're giving me this, I'm giving you this, it's okay. And so we talk that way about pretty much everything in our culture. And so what happens is it's made its way into the way that we look at and think about uh, relationships and even marriage. Two consumers kind of coming together and if they're getting their needs met in a way that's worth it for us to continue, then we'll continue on in this. And that's really the way our culture looks at it a lot of times, at large anyway, the way we look at marriage. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible gives us this image of covenant, which is a binding promise for life. It's not something that's like, ah, if I don't feel like it, then I can kind of check out on this. That's not what the Bible presents at all in Ephesians 5 or Genesis 2 or Matthew 19. It's not God's view of it, but it's this binding promise for life. And so when the feelings come and they inevitably in any relationship will be stronger and weaker at different times, there'll be ebbs and flows of that. But the way that God has designed this covenant is that your love grows and regrows and shapes and moves and changes inside this covenant. This binding promise that's for life. And there'll be other times it's stronger or the feeling of it will be stronger, but it's safe to grow within that covenant in the way that God has designed it to be. But part of the problem we have in our culture is this idea of marriage is very uh, untenable in our culture when we see it as a consumer. And I think that's why we have a divorce rate right around 50% in our country. Because we don't see it the way God sees it. We don't see it as a binding covenant for life. We see it differently. And so I want you to think about that for just a second, about this kind of consumer mentality that gets into it. And maybe you do it in some ways and not even recognize it. It's like we're the fish in the water. You don't realize you're in the water because we're so inundated with it all the time. And so we get it from all different angles. And so we talk about marriage or looking for a spouse as someone that can make me happy. 
or, or we have a checklist of things that we're looking for. And if they meet enough of these checklists, maybe they'll be a suitable spouse. Maybe they can come into my life and they can give me enough of what I need that I might make that commitment to them. Now, it's not wrong to have certain things that you're looking for or looking for a compatible person and, and the things that would, that would help make this a successful marriage. But I want you to think about the consumer language that's there when we talk that way, when we operate that way. And so what ends up happening is we do that a lot and we talk that way in all sorts of different ways. But what I would say to you is that in light of what Paul has been saying in Ephesians is he's telling you that you don't live by your flesh. And if you go back to what we talked about as we've been walking through Ephesians, this idea of living in your flesh is pointing, putting yourself at the center of the world rather than God in his rightful place. And so if I, I operate in my flesh, then it's all about me and what I want and what I desire and what I get out of it. A consumer in a lot of ways. And so then I see marriage that way when I'm operating in the flesh. What can I get out of it? What does it offer me? How will it make me happy? How will it help me achieve my goals? And so we end up seeing marriage primarily as that way. And so you seek a spouse that checks the boxes, that makes you happy, that that gives you these things. And so marriage becomes all about individual gratification. In a large sense, that's the way our culture operates. What am I getting out of it? And if I'm getting enough out of it, then it would be worth it for me to enter into this contract. (laughs) That's really the way we see it in our culture. Instead of a covenant binding for life, it's a contract that's got some loopholes that I could get out of it if I need to. And so what happens is that's the way our world sees it. And so we idealize romance that I'll have to have this certain feeling and it always has to feel like this. And if it feels this way, then I will stay in this. But a, a binding covenant in the way God's designed it is it supersedes your feelings just in that moment because it's for life glued together. That's what it means to hold fast. And so it's very different in the way that we see it. And so I want you to look again what Paul says here. Right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And so what he says here foundationally about what marriage is and the way God designed it to be is very, very different than what our culture says. He says it's primarily about showing God's love for his people, the church. And marriage is meant to reflect that. We are to reflect back God's glory and what he's like and the way he's loved us in Jesus in our marriages. It's the way God designed it to be. And so I want you to think about that in contrast to the way our culture and our world looks at it. Two very, very different things. And so when you follow this idea of wedding and marriage and what it looks like in the Bible, we get a whole lot of images that come up throughout the Bible. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. Uh, We see this idea of a wedding Right. Genesis two, we start with a wedding. We're going to have a wedding feast at the end and Jesus's return as he reclaims his bride. We see this image all the way through. And so what Paul says here is that God's design in marriage is that it would reflect God's love for us in Jesus. And so my question is, what does that look like? 
If that's the way God's designed it to be, what does that look like? Does it look like two consumers coming together? And if you give me what I need, then I might hang around in this. Is that the way God deals with us? Is that what God has done for us in Jesus? Does he look at us and go, oh, man, they can give me a lot of things that I need that I don't already have. And if they can continue to do that, they will be my people. Thankfully, no. We'd all be hopelessly lost if that was the case, because we don't have anything that Jesus needs. He's perfect relationship, perfectly in and of himself. And so what does it look like in the way that God loves us in Jesus? And the answer is the creator God of the universe lays down his life for us. He enters into his creation and sets aside all the rights, all the things that he deserves, all the things that are rightfully his, his throne reigning above all things. And he enters into this creation as a baby, as a child, as an embryo that grows and is born and lives in this life. And he goes through all the struggles that we go through and he does all of this so that he can come to the end of his life and willfully lay it down for us. That he can become sin on our behalf, that he can save us from ourselves, that he could do what we could never do for us in all things as he comes and he loves us to all the way of laying his life down for us. The very heart of the gospel that we proclaim that God's done for us what we can never do for ourselves. And he loves us that much. And what Paul says is that's what marriage is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like Christ's love for the church. And so when you start to think about the way our world sees it versus the way God has designed it to be. God's perfect, amazing, sacrificial love is the blueprint of what marriage is to look like. It's a stark contrast from coming at it as a consumer and what can I get out of it and how will it make me happy and how do I feel about it? But it's about sacrificially laying down your life for your spouse so that they would see more fully what God is like and what he's done for us in Jesus a pretty different way than the way our world looks at it. In fact, I'd say it's basically the direct opposite of the way our world looks at it a lot of times. And so marriage in the way God designed it is another vehicle God is using to move us closer to him and to see more fully what his love is like. Marriage is designed to point us to that. And so when we start to think about what it looks like, it means sacrificially loving your spouse. Putting their needs first. Pursuing them in all these ways that God has pursued you in Jesus. And so when that begins to happen, you have this image of what it looks like in the way God has designed it. One man, one woman for life in a covenantal relationship to point each other more fully to how God loves us in Jesus. That's what the Bible says marriage is for and what it looks like. Now, there's a whole lot of benefits and things that go with it, and it's glorious and it's wonderful and it's hard and difficult and all of that wrapped together. But it's there to point us to God's love for us in Jesus. And if we get that wrong, the expectations we put on it can become crushing and difficult and really, really hard. Difficult to the point of being, um, you see, I'm just not going to deal with this anymore. It's not worth it. 
And so I want you to think about some of the expectations that we bring to marriage. And what I would submit to you is our expectations are built on what we believe marriage is for and what it's about. And so if you come to marriage with God's design is that it is to point your spouse more fully. It's to show the world what God's love is like in Jesus. That's going to be very different than if you come to your spouse or you come into marriage looking in your spouse what only God can do for you. There's a huge difference there. See, what often happens in our culture is we see it from this consumer picture. You give me these things, you meet my needs, I have my checklist, I'm looking for the right person. And so we romanticize it. If I find the right person, everything will be great. And so we talk about things like a soulmate. Right? If I just find my soulmate, if I just find the one that will complete me, that will make me whole, that will... We talk in this very idealized language about what marriage is. If I just find that right person that checks off enough of the boxes, everything will be great. The problem with that is that no one person is your soulmate. There's no one person that can complete you. The only one that can complete you is God and what he's done for you in Jesus. You have an infinite hole in your heart that only God can fill. And if you seek to fill it with another person, they will ultimately let you down. They cannot do it. And so if you enter into marriage with that expectation, it will never be met. And you may have a wonderful spouse that is great in so many ways. That does all kinds of amazing things. But if you're expecting them to be the thing that completes you, they cannot do it. And God says he hasn't designed marriage to be that way. And so if you are looking for your spouse to do what only God can do, you will be disappointed. And it'll be hard. And it'll be difficult. Because the reality is when we get married, when two people come together, it's two sinful, broken people coming together. It's not the perfect person that can complete you. They don't exist. It's two sinful, broken people coming together. And so when we see God's design for marriage and we enter with the expectation that he's given us, that we're there to show God's love for one another, it changes the way that we operate in it. I'm not looking to my spouse to be the thing that completes me. God has blessed me with a wonderful wife. I, I oftenly joke that I'm the president of the married over your head society, right? Like I'm way up there, right? I'm married way over my head. But if I expect her to be everything that God is and what he has designed me to be in my relationship with him, she can't do that. And so entering in and seeing it, having the expectation built on the way that God has designed us to be. And that then leads to the purpose of which we come into marriage, which we're going to talk about next week. I'm going to come back to this next week. But the purpose with which you see your marriage is going to greatly influence the way that you operate within it. And the purpose that God has given us is ultimately it's about serving and glorifying God and showing what his love is like. And that's what he's given us in marriage. And if you enter into your marriage that I now have an opportunity to serve and love my spouse, to glorify what God is like, that's going to be very different. And I want you to think about why. 
And think about how it fits in Ephesians and everything that Paul has been saying to this point. Put off your flesh, live in the spirit. Don't walk in the darkness, walk in the light. And he's showing you this. Your identity is rooted and grounded in Jesus and nothing else. When you live inside of your identity in Christ, you know what that looks like. It's to serve others. It's to love people and extend the grace that you've received in Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's what it looks like. Jesus says, you'll know my disciples, by the way, that they love each other. And so when you begin to serve and love others, you're now walking in step with the spirit. Everything we've been talking about. Living inside of what God has created you to be, being in your identity in Jesus. And so when we start to operate and see the purpose of our marriage is an opportunity to do just that, it's going to go way better. We're now in line with the, God, the way God created us to be and the way it was designed to be. And so then you see that you have this opportunity in this relationship to point each other more fully to Jesus in all things. And you get the opportunity to do that within your marriage. And if both parties would adopt this together, if both male, female, husband, wife would come together in a relationship, if I see this as I get to die to myself and love you and lift you up so that you would see Jesus more fully, do you know what would happen? Wonderful marriages that point the world, the watching world would see and go, whoa, Something really different. Now, here's the problem. You can't do that. Not in and of yourself. That's why Paul says you need to be filled with the spirit right before he talks about any of this. Because you can't do it. In fact, that's the idealized version of everything that the Bible tells us about what marriage looks like. One man, one woman for life, covenantal relationship, monogamous, committed for your entire life to point each other more fully to who God is and the way he loves you in Jesus. So here's the question. Who can say I die to myself every moment of every day and always put my spouse first? Anybody? you raise your hand, you're going to be teaching a marriage seminar next week, <laughs> right? No, we go, that's, that's the ideal. But I want you to think about how the ideal fits with the reality. The ideal is we all go, no, I'm not doing that. Far from it. I'm really struggling in a lot of these things. And I see my selfishness. And I see the way I struggle in that. Or you hear this ideal and you sit here today and you go, yeah, one man, one woman for life. But yet I've already been divorced. How does that work? Or you sit here and you say, man, one man, one woman for life. And that sounds great. And I'd love to be married, but I don't even have any real prospects in my life right now. How does that work? And the answer is every single one of those things is pointing us to our desperate need for Jesus. All of it. And so when you see that your marriage is made to point you more fully to Jesus, then the fact that you mess up in doing that and you're not doing it every day of every moment and everything and you're continuing to struggle, it reinforces the fact of why we need marriage to be rooted and grounded in the way God made it. Do you see how that works? I desperately need to be reminded that I need Jesus of every moment of every day in all things. And so I need to structure my marriage to help me see that. 
Because that's the reality. That I haven't done it completely. And I do desperately need Jesus in every day and every moment in all things. And so that's what we're going to talk about next week as far as the purpose of marriage. God has put this person in your life that sees you uh, more clearly probably than anyone else on the planet. You know what? Because they wake up next to you. They go to bed with you. They see you when you're frustrated. They see you when you're upset, when you lose your temper, when you struggle and all those things more clearly than anybody else does. And so God knew what he was doing. He brings us together for the purpose that we can encourage one another to see how much we need Jesus. Because they're the closest to you. They're the mirror that shows you the reality. And it's ugly a lot of times. Right? That's why that idealized version doesn't work. Right? You, you found the person who's perfect in all these ways and they look great and they're all this stuff and then guess what happens? You get married. And then they start to lose their hair. And they start to gain weight. And they make weird noises when they sleep. Right? And all the things that you add to it. Right? All those things start to come to bear. And if it's this checklist of this consumer thing, it all starts to unravel. But if in that, we see that God's design is to point one another more fully to Jesus, you know what happens when all those things come? It just gets sweeter. God becomes more real and more alive and you see him in that because he's designed it to be that way it's the way he's made it to be that you would love one another and point each other to jesus that he'd be glorified in all things and so even marriage as we're going to talk about this the next couple of weeks is ultimately not about you it's about jesus and what he's done for us even in that and so next week we'll talk about purpose of marriage and the sanctification and the way God uses us with one another to help grow in that. And then the last week we'll talk about the, the uh, structure and the way that that goes together, the way we complement one another. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you for the way that you have designed marriage uh, to point us more fully to you. And so we thank you for your good design. We thank you for spouses we thank you for that gift. Um, I pray here right now for each one of us. Uh, God, you know each of our hearts. You know the failures and the struggles that we come up against in relationships, particularly in marriage. I pray right now for those that feel like uh, they have failed in marriage, whether it's uh, through a divorce or, or not being married or wherever they are in that thing. And I pray that you would impress upon them today. That all that we are looking for is found in you. That you are the perfect spouse in every way. That you love us beyond anything that we can imagine. I pray that you would remind each of us here today that we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And it's all because of you and what you've done for us. That you would show us that in our marriages, in our relationships, in our lives. Uh, we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.